This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. On Tuesday, the federal budget revealed a temporary migration boom. This comes a month after Labor announced a streamlined skilled migration program aimed at creating pathways to permanency for skilled migrants who can fill much-needed labor shortages. But in response, the coalition has whistled a familiar tune. Everything that Labor's seen to be doing is advancing a big Australia by stealth and not really uh, with any sort of plan. Dan Tian and Peter Dutton have criticised the Albanese government for allowing the number of immigrants to balloon, which they say will further entrench a nationwide housing crisis. But in the years ahead, migration is actually forecast to drop down to the historic average. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about the need for a more nuanced discussion on immigration. It's Friday, the 12th of May. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So we're in budget week, Lenore, still unpacking and making sense of everything. One thing listeners may have missed is the migration measures. What did we learn about what Labor has planned for migration under this budget? Well, sort of not so much what Labor has planned as what's just happening. So the pandemic saw the first net population outflow from Australia since World War II. Temporary migration was initially kind of slower to bounce back than had been forecast, but now it's really picking up more than forecast. So the budget increased that forecast compared with the last budget. The number of temporary migrants arriving in Australia still won't make up for the loss of migration over the pandemic, but it will now be 400,000 in 22-23 and 315,000 in 23-24. So that's this sort of one-off catch-up. And then it's going to sort of go back to the more normal pre-pandemic levels, they say, of around 235000 a year. So the biggest changes in migration are the temporary migration figures. That's what's bouncing around. And that's a demand-driven system. So it's not immediately and totally in the government's gift, although they can sort of change the levers a little bit. And the forecasts changed. That's the whole story. The forecast changed. Mm. And the Labor government did recently announce a migration review in April, Mike. What did we find out about that? 
So that was quite a quick review, but a very interesting one. Uh, it was only set up in September, I think, and reported in February, but it sort of pointed the direction forward, which was essentially, in very broad brush terms, to shift the focus from temporary to more permanent migration and to change the way we assess skilled migration. And the main thrust of it was we've built up this huge backlog of, of temporary migrants on a sort of temporary permanent basis, and that's a bad thing for them. It's also a bad thing for the economy. Yeah, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, I think at the time said that it was a great big mess and it actually, the temporary migration program had sort of become like almost like a guest worker program, which is not what we need, not what we want. So they were saying this mess had built up, they say, over the years of the coalition and they were cleaning it up. And Lenore, the budget also predicted that the birth rate would go down. What are the implications of that? Yeah, so even with this migration, the population is still projected to be a little lower in June 2031 compared with pre-pandemic forecasts, and that is because the fertility rates are predicted to be slightly lower. So I don't know, maybe we need Peter Costello back encouraging <laughs> us all to have another one for the country. I don't know. Well, we do need to. I mean, most one point about migration, it also, apart from the overall numbers, it can help to balance the age profile of the, of, mm. the, uh, of the population. So, I mean, the example is always Japan where they've had historically very low migration. They also live for an extremely long time <laughs> compared with other countries and so they've got a dramatically ageing population which is increasingly hard to look after in terms of healthcare, aged care, tax revenue, all those kind of things. So to have a certain level of migration is necessary as Australia sort of heads somewhat down that same path. We do need migrants to help balance that out. We're recording this on Thursday, so we haven't heard the Coalition's official budget response, but Dan Tian did describe that review as Labor pursuing a big Australia by stealth. What did he mean by that, Lenore? Hmm, what did he mean and what did he say? They're two <laughs> potentially different things. Look, I think the opposition is keen to link this sort of catch-up in the migration program to the housing crisis, to traffic congestion. We're back to the old, you know, do you want a big Australia debate? What Peter Dutton says is that he wants a well-planned migration program, which is good. Like, I think everybody wants a well-planned migration program. But then he says things like, the fact is, if you're in the middle of a housing crisis, in the middle of a rental crisis, and you're already stuck in congestion, adding another 300,000 people per year over five years, where are you going to live? Now, taken in isolation and in this little snapshot of time, he's not entirely wrong. Obviously, if you've got a shortage of housing supply and you've got a sort of a big blip in migrants coming in, then in the short term, it may exacerbate the shortage of of houses, depending on where those people settle, what kind of households they form. But that might be a good slogan, but it doesn't make sense to me to look at this in a snapshot in time and in the short term. For one thing, net migration is also a key factor in Australia's economic growth. It fills job shortages and we have real shortages. And temporary migration is demand-driven. So it's not really a kind of an organised thing that a government can just turn off, you know, today to tomorrow. The housing supply problem is not caused by migration either. So I feel like he's making hay with something that is possibly right now has some validity but is actually something that you should look at in a much longer term and, you know, more meaningful way. Yeah, so a few things about this. Firstly, the the figure for this year, the 400,000 figure, which they're focusing on, the net migration figure, is driven not only by people coming in but by the 
lack of people going out because mm. people weren't coming in on the same numbers as they normally would during the pandemic. In fact, well, there was a negative migration figure, as Lenore said. There are no people here who would normally be going out as well, leaving leaving Australia to bring that net migration figure down. So that's obviously a very temporary, in itself a very temporary thing. That's just going to resolve in the next few years and, and bring net migration levels back to roughly where they were planned to be. Under the coalition government previously in 2019, they said the predictions for net migration were 270,000 in the early years and then dropping down very slightly to 268,000 over the next few years. So that's not that different to now. The second thing is whether migration affects housing. Yes, obviously, if more people are coming in, that does put more pressure on the housing situation, which is particularly bad for many people at the moment, but it is not the only cause. It's just much more complicated than that. You know, we had this unplanned, unwanted experiment during the pandemic when we had no effective migration and house prices shot up and rents shot up by record levels. So not that population doesn't have an impact on housing affordability and availability, but it's only one factor. It's obviously not the only factor that, that, that influences that. So it's just a much more complicated situation than that. And the pandemic also meant that house prices went up and housing supply was stalled because we had this kind of shortage of housing materials, building materials, and they got more expensive. So that's another sort of pandemic hangover thing. And also the incoming migrant labour might actually help to build the houses. So yeah, like Mike says, is complicated. And one more gripe with what the coalition is saying. <laughs> they need to get their analogies straight. Dan Tian says the equivalent population of Canberra is moving to Australia this year. Peter Dutton says uh, 1.5 million people arriving over the five-year period. That's more than the entire population of Adelaide. So, like, we're adding another Canberra in a year or another Adelaide in five years. I mean, just kind of stick to one th- one or the other or, or just, you know. <laughs> that wouldn't be the top of my gripe list, but anyway. <laughs> So we talked about the housing crisis a bit before. Are there some immediate things that could be done to fix this? Immediate. um... (laughs) Or short term, short to medium term, let's say, (laughs) to be fair. Uh, I think there are policy levers that are mostly in the hands of the states and local authorities to some extent on, on housing. But I think generally there is possibly a movement on in terms of how we think about our cities. I was kind of joking when I said, you know, they need to get the ducks in a row on which cities they're talking about adding. But if we do add cities as low density as the way our cities are currently organised, then we do have a big problem. We have to think about density in cities. A lot of people don't like to talk about it. People who already live in established houses in suburbs that are relatively close to CBDs are often loath to change the way they live and the way those suburbs have been established. But for a lot of good reasons, we need to make our cities more dense. Those reasons are we're using up valuable land on their fringes, which is, you know, for biodiversity, for wildlife, for for environmental reasons. It's much harder to put in services as our cities stretch out further. Talking about infrastructure and congestion, the more people people live close together, it sounds paradoxical, but the more, the closer they live together, the easier it is to put in transport, shops, etc., all the things, childcare, all the things that people need. It sort of feels like the mood is changing a little on that, and maybe that's something that governments can do is by talking about it in different terms to just encourage this feeling that as our population expands, the way we've organised our cities has to change. Otherwise, there is a big problem with infrastructure, with people driving miles to get to work, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so, Lenore, that leads us to the housing policy. What was the housing policy in this budget? Look, there's a bunch of stuff that the new government is doing, sort of coming at the problem of the housing crisis from different angles, if you like. So there's this Housing Australia Future Fund, which is the fund to try to build 30,000 homes for the disadvantaged that at the time of recording was still sort of held up in the Senate, but that is a way of starting to build some social and affordable houses. Many people say it's inadequate. That's part of the argy-bargy in the Senate, Mm. but it's a start. They also raised Commonwealth rent assistance by 15%, which will help some low-income people afford their rents, although, again, compared with the rental rises over recent years, you know, it's a start. There was some more tax breaks for build-to-rent, so that whole idea that major developers could be incentivised to build housing developments with a view to long-term rental and with the rules that the tenants have to be offered leases of at least three years, so to make renting long-term a more viable option for families. There was sort of that pre-announcement of opening the home guarantee scheme where the government acts as a guarantor for 15% of the loan, which was just for married couples or de facto couples to sort of other groups of people who might want to buy housing together. So there's, you know, they're doing bits coming at it from different angles, but it's not something that is going to be solved overnight. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a problem for, you know, quite a while. Lenore, we've had some pretty ugly debates over immigration in this country. What are the dangers of weaponising this particular issue? So immigration has been weaponised all through Australian politics in, you know, for decades and, you know, in ways that don't go to the obvious complexities of the issue as we've been discussing. The big Australia term that the Coalition is starting to use again harks back to former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd after an intergenerational report came out showing that we were on track to have a population of 36 million in 2050. And he was saying we should have a big Australia if we had the right policies needed to plan for it. You know, he was trying to say a bigger population is fine if you plan for it. Now, I think we're actually at the moment on track to have a population pretty close to that, I think 33 million by 2050 anyway, but we haven't planned for it. However, when he said that, it caused such a ruckus for these same reasons because the opposition played on people's fears that the big Australia would mean lots of new people coming to Australia that would somehow imperil their existing way of life, that when Julia Gillard became Prime Minister, she sort of disavowed Big Australia. And ever since, it's sort of been a code word for this kind of fear campaign of immigration means that, you know, your kids won't be able to get a job and you won't be able to buy a house and that sort of things. And this this is what's weird about it, because if you look at what Peter Dutton is actually saying, he says, we're all for immigration if you plan for it. Well, Thanks, that's that's great. But then in the next, you know, sentence, they use Big Australia as, as that sort of code for runaway population growth. I do think, though, there's some sort of counterbalancing pressures, political pressures on the coalition because they also want to win votes in sort of ethnic communities. So they have to sort of find a way to even that out. And also in regional communities where the workforce shortages are incredibly dire and people, you know, communities really want migrants to come. So there's complexities in it for the coalition, but they are using Big Australia in that sort of almost pejorative way. 
there's such a disconnect between some of the rhetoric and some of the policies over many years from the coalition particularly. You know, John Howard, going right back to the, the Howard years, Howard famously said we'd had too much Asian immigration before he became Prime Minister. The net migration did drop somewhat in the early 90s before he came to power because of the recession primarily. But then uh, his years in power increased and then towards the end of his time in power, it shot up to quite unprecedented levels. Tony Abbott more recently has said we have to clamp down on migration in the way that John Howard did, even though he didn't. Yet under the coalition government from 2013 to you know last year, there was no clampdown because they recognised that it's actually in many ways economically sensible to run a migration program. So, yeah, they talk a big game, but when they're in power, they don't actually clamp down or, you know, restrictions on migration except in the asylum sector, which is a very small component numerically of Mm. of our immigration program. So, Lenore, what's our role as journalists and news organisations in mediating this debate given the dangers you've I think we just have to pick pick it apart and keep it factual as always. You know, there have been some such dumb forays into this debate. I always remember the former member for Lindsay saying that it was asylum seekers' fault that there were traffic jams on the M4. You know, people do take this to silly extremes. I think we just have to kind of stick to the facts. Yeah, and also um, run stories by and about migrants Mm. um, and their experiences in Australia, good and bad. Um, I live with a migrant who came under Don (laughs) Howard, Uh, actually. There's a success story for us. (laughs) We ran a story just this weekend about Ezidi refugees from part of Iraq who came here over the past few years escaping ISIS and how many of them have settled in the New South Wales town of Armadale. Obviously, they've been through incredible trauma. It's very difficult to settle in a new country and learn the language, et cetera, et cetera. But in general, it was a very positive story they've made new lives for themselves. They've done great things and established themselves. They've been great for the town as well. They've been generally welcomed by people in the town. But I think just telling the rich variety of stories of of migrants in this country is one way that we should report on it to sort of counter the, you know, the fear of the unknown Mm, of of mm. when you talk about big numbers or, you know, terrible rhetoric like, you know, even floods or waves of migration that conjures up images that can frighten people. If you reduce it down to the level of actual individuals and families, puts a much more human face on what migration actually means for Australia. Next, our succession obsession. Hey, Laura Mefiotes here. At Guardian Australia, we want to make sure you're getting the news that matters in 2023. Our morning mail and afternoon update newsletters are short and capture the most important headlines of the day. If that sounds good, you can subscribe for free right now by visiting the Guardian homepage, searching Guardian Australia newsletters, or just downloading our app and you'll get daily notifications. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. 
Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Listeners, we have given in to our obsession with succession, so we will be talking about it again this week. Switch off now if you have not watched episode seven. seven. Mike, what can't you get out of your head about this week's episode? Yeah, only three episodes to go if you're not following, so we'll stop boring our non-succession <laughs> listeners in three weeks. Um, so I really hate Tom and Shiv. I wonder if we shouldn't clear the air. Yeah. I'm sure. I think that you. So I quite enjoyed their massive final set two. Well, maybe not final, but finally getting to actually hating each other. Have the fight. You're pathetic. You're a masochist and you can't even take it. I think you are incapable of love. And I think you are maybe not a good person to have children. Well, that's not very nice to say, is it? I also really enjoyed Connor this week and the uh, <laughs> speculation over where he might be the ambassador. Yeah. It's a no-go on the slows. Yes, no-go on the slows, but he was going to talk to his woman about Omar. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the things that he said about uh, countries are just what you imagine rich people saying, like Mogadishu is a bit car bomby. <laughs> I don't think anyone says that, do they? <laughs> I hope not, but it's just like they're oh, so Lord. despicable. You just mm. think oh, you're not even surprised when they say things like Oman is a... Poor man Saudi Arabia or rich man's Yemen? Hmm, I have to check. Uh, Lenore, what was your favourite part this week? So at the party, Kendall was talking about the op-ed ogres. <laughs> Of a newspaper that Logan owned, so, you know, people who had opinion pieces published, and he said... They're not all crypto-fascists and right-wing nutjobs. We also have some venture capital Dems and uh, centrist schools. Dad's ideological range was wide, (laughs) (laughs) which I found funny in an awful kind of way and also made me consider who I would put on an Australian list of op-ed ogres, which I obviously (laughs) won't discuss here. (laughs) We'll keep that. (laughs) <laughs> for just us. Um, that I can't, he delivered that line so well. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, pretty special. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producer is me, Gabrielle Jackson. We'll catch you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.